Welcome, dress listeners, to part two of our series on the history of fashion and film. Yes, and last week we talked about the origins of the semiotic relationship between fashion and Hollywood film, but we only got into the 1930s. So today we're moving out of the 30s and into the 1940s, which of course takes us straight into World War II. And on the show, we've talked a lot about fashion and war as it relates to Europe during both World War I and World War II, but less so about the relationship fashion and war in America. Right. And it's actually incredibly fascinating because throughout the 1930s, America's changing perception of their homegrown talent was reflected in the era's leading fashion magazines such as Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. Uh, Both of these magazines began to feature American fashion designers more and more throughout the decade. Elizabeth Hawes reflected on this transitory period in American fashion in her book Fashion is Spinach, which was published in 1938. And in it, she writes, quote, in the late 20s, 90% of the drawings and photographs were the work of Parisian couturiers. And, and she's talking about Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. And then she says, many pages in both magazines are now devoted to clothes created in America for American life. The outbreak of World War II in 1939 marked a significant shift in the fate of American designers who, having continued to operate in the shadow of Paris throughout the 1930s, were suddenly left to stand all on their own. And during the German occupation of Paris from June 1940 to August of 1944, many of the leading French couture houses were forced to close, and those that did remain open did so under severely limited operations and and some pretty severe restrictions as well. Right. And for those of our listeners who might not have heard it, April actually did a fantastic interview on um, Stuff You Missed in History Class, which we featured a couple months ago. So check it out if you want to learn more about fashion in World War II. So for the French fashion industry, this meant that communication with America during World War II, um, it meant that one of their most important export markets was almost entirely broken. And In 1941, after American designers and manufacturers presented promising fall and spring collections, New York Times fashion journalist Virginia Pope, well, she declared New York City to be the fashion center of the world. American designers may have come into their own during the war, but they did so under restriction and regulation. Beginning in 1942, American fashion designers had to grapple with restrictions imposed by Regulation L-85, which were government-imposed sanctions that severely limited just what designers could and could not produce. The purpose of L-85 was to conserve materials needed for the war effort, and this included fabrics such as silk, cotton, wool, leather, rubber, nylon. So, you know, pretty much every material (laughs) that you need to make clothing and footwear. (laughs) Uh, And the regulations thus restricted just how much material could be used in the making of new garments. So we had campaigns such as Make Do and Mend, which encouraged people to avoid shopping altogether by mending their old clothes, something we, of course, support very much today. L85 essentially challenged the very nature of the fashion industry itself, which, as we all know, depends on the production of new seasonal clothing styles to stimulate consumerism. And as we established last episode, Hollywood films, well, they were actively complicit in encouraging fashion consumption throughout the 1930s. And costume designers, like their fashion designer counterparts, were not exempt from L-85 regulations during the war. In a 1944 article in the New York Times, renowned Hollywood costume designer Edith Head called L-85, quote, the greatest boon that ever came to fashion designers in Hollywood. 
So it would appear, Cass, that in the 1940s, costume designers still considered themselves as fashion designers. And she goes on to say about L85, quote, it banished super luxury and brought us all down to earth. Today, we create sensible styles for women, the kind that they can actually wear. And she goes on to say, how well I remember the day when we would swirl fox skins around the hem of a secretary's dress or put (laughs) white satin uniform on a trained nurse. Now we hold to stark realism. And by this time, Head had been the head designer at Paramount for seven years. She had taken over for her predecessor, Travis Banton, in 1937. And Head, like Banton, began her career in film working with Howard Greer in the 1920s as a costume illustrator before climbing the ranks. And indeed, Head is certainly one of the most prolific and famed designers from the Hollywood Golden Age. Numerous books have been written about this prolific designer, who April has eight Academy Awards for Best Costume Design. And wait for it, she has 444 credits on IMDb. <laughs> That's intense. <laughs> she worked for almost 60 years in the film industry. So, you know, she had an incredible career. Her first credit, it dates to, I think, 1925. And her last film um, is Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin. That was released after her death in 1982. So she died in 1981 at the age of 83. Head is quoted in Margaret Bailey's 1982 book, Those Glorious Glamour Years, as saying, quote, I do not consider a motion picture costume designer necessarily a fashion creator because we do what the script tells us to. If we do a period piece, then we recreate fashion that was done before. And if we have a character role, we do character clothes. It is only by the accident of a script that calls for fashion and an actress that can wear fashion that some of the beautiful clothes will emerge. I don't consider myself a designer in the sense of a fashion designer. I am a motion picture costume designer. So just how did Head go from identifying as a fashion designer in Hollywood in the 1940s to firmly distinguishing herself as a costume designer by the end of her career? I love this answer, April, because it actually lies with the advent of Dior's new look, which is a little unexpected. (laughs) Um, As many of us know, 1947 witnessed this dramatic and, you know, sudden change in fashion thanks to the unprecedented success of Christian Dior's premier collection. And, you know, he introduced dresses with nipped in waist, those padded hips and full long skirts, and they stood in direct contrast to the war-regulated fashions of years prior, which is why so many people loved them. Unfortunately, for the many films released the year that this change took place, the costumes were immediately glaringly out of fashion. <laughs> yeah. Passe. <laughs> you know, Dior's new look was this significant reminder that though film costume may be perceived and interpreted as fashion, it will never be able to truly contend with the whims and follies of contemporary trends. And Edith had designed costumes for 11 films that were released in 1947. So to say that she was affected is a bit of an understatement here. <laughs> and, and and looking back on this period for the book, um, Edith Heads Hollywood, Edith reflected, quote, I learned my lesson the hard way. Just after Dior brought out the new look, every film I had done in the past few months looked like something from the breadlines. With each screening, I vowed that I would never get caught by fashion trend again and became a confirmed fence sitter. 
Although despite her weariness of fashion trends, it did not keep her designs from apparently sparking them, as was the case with the dress she designed for Elizabeth Taylor in A Place in the Sun, which was a 1950 film. In a 1978 article for the American Film Journal, Edith wrote, my dress for Elizabeth Taylor in A Place in the Sun was taken up by a manufacturer of debutante party dresses. Someone at Paramount once counted at a party 37 Elizabeth Taylor's dancing. All studio designers have created something that influences fashion, but a good costume designer shouldn't try to influence style, though naturally he hopes to hit upon something that many people will like. But fashion is a pretty powerful force, Cass, and high fashion was going to make it into the films Edith designed whether she liked it or not. More on that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. If our listeners have not yet guessed it, Edith had to contend with high fashion thanks to the relationship forged between two of fashion's greatest luminaries, the haute couturier Hubert de Givenchy and actress Audrey Hepburn. This partnership between, you know, this legendary duo created some of the most memorable and iconic of all Hollywood fashion history moments. You might remember from our season one episode on Givenchy that he and Audrey really formed this special lifelong friendship after they met in the 1950s. And it's really one of those special bonds, um, one of the most special bonds, I would argue, in the history of fashion and film, and one of the most important because it existed on and off the screen. Givenchy, of course, designed Audrey's costumes for seven films, including Sabrina, Funny Face, and of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's. But while Givenchy might have dressed Audrey in her most iconic roles of her career, the costume designer of all three of the Paramount-produced films you just mentioned, Cass, was actually credited as being Edith Head. And Givenchy may have brought the cachet and high glamour of Paris couture to the films, but it was Head as the costume designer who was responsible for translating many of these designs to the screen. And she also had the responsibility of creating Audrey's less glamorous looks, as <laughs> well as those of the supporting cast, and, you know, kind of creating the overall look um, of the film. And, and despite her, quote unquote, on the fence status, Edith is responsible for some fabulous creations herself. Um, the film Funny Face is a particular interest for this episode's topic because it was the film itself was about a fashion photographer, Dick Avery, who was played by Fred Astaire and based on the famed fashion photographer Richard Avedon. And as well, the plot goes on um, to detail the discovery and making of a fashion model, Joe Stockton, who was played by Hepburn. And there are so many wonderful fashion moments in this film. If you have not seen it, you definitely want to check it out, including guest appearances by fashion models Davima and Susie Parker, who appear in this number, Think Pink, which you can find on YouTube. Um, it's sang by fashion magazine editor Maggie Prescott, who's played by Kay Thompson, um, who declares, banish the black, burn the blue, and bury the beige. From now on, girls, think pink before she bursts into <laughs> song. It's really fun. <laughs> but as Audrey was not present in this scene, it was Edith Head, not Givenchy, who is responsible for designing the looks for the lead and supporting cast, which includes everything from, you know, pink bathing suits to pink ball gowns. YouTube, like I said, this immediately you will not be disappointed. Of course, Givenchy was just one of many haute couturiers who have worked in Hollywood. Um, in part one of the series, we mentioned the work of Lucille and Poiret, and there were many, many more. So many, in fact, that film costume expert 
Christopher Laverty dedicated an entire book to the subject entitled Fashion in Film. And he also has a fabulous blog, which is clothesonfilm.com. You guys can pop over there and check that out. And of course, in 1931, Coco Chanel was lured to Hollywood by Sam Goldwyn of MGM with a million-dollar contract. (laughs) Yeah, and that's in 1931 dollars. Only to find out that Hollywood costume design was not really her thing. She did work on three films before leaving California, um, Palmy Days and Tonight or Never, which are both from 1931, and also the 1932 film The Greeks Had a Word for Them. Yeah, and I think it's tonight or never, but she had a problem with Gloria Swanson because Swanson wasn't thin enough for her gowns. <laughs> and uh, Swanson insisted on wearing kind of a girdle to slim fit. I mean, this is the 30s, so we're talking bias cut, like, you know, slim as you can possibly be. But apparently Gloria was pregnant at that time and nobody knew about it. Ah. But needless to say, the two did not get along. <laughs> Elsa Scaparelli designed the costumes for Mae West in the 1937 film Every Day is a Holiday, as well as the British stars Margaret Lockwood and Anna Neagle in the 1936 films The Beloved Vagabond and Limelight, respectively. And much later, she designed the costumes for the sultry siren Zsa Zsa Gabor when she plays Jane Avril in the 1952 film Moulin Rouge, which I actually have not seen yet, so I definitely have to check that out. Yeah, I want to see that too. Yeah, it looks pretty amazing. And her designs for uh, for Zsa Zsa are not exactly historically accurate, but they are beautiful. There's this one cherry red dress in particular that looks like it walks straight out of a 1952 fashion magazine. You know, it kind of has that 50 silhouette and it clings to Zsa Zsa's torso and it sculpts around her breasts and it, you know, cinches her already tiny frame before curving around her padded hips to extend to the floor. So pretty amazing. Yeah, all the makings of Dior's new look, but made uniquely Scaparelli by the addition of a huge floral bow on one shoulder and opera-length gloves, both in her signature shocking pink. And the film's costumes won an Academy Award for the costume designer Marcel Vertez, who was also responsible for the film's production design. And a fun fact here, uh, Vertez had previously collaborated with Scap on numerous occasions designing whimsical ads and bottles for her various perfumes. And another little tidbit, uh, Mae West's famous hourglass silhouette is rumored to have been the inspiration behind that body-shaped perfume bottle that she used for her scent shocking. And Christian Dior, of course, also had a profound influence on Hollywood's leading ladies, dressing the likes of Marilyn Monroe, Ingrid Bergman, Elizabeth Taylor, Grace Kelly, Marlene Dietrich. According to Dior.com for Alfred Hitchcock's 1950 thriller Stage Fright, Marlena actually had Dior specifically written into her contract and is rumored to have said to the film's producer, no Dior, no Dietrich. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Can we have that put into our contracts? I know, right? (laughs) Uh, Dior would go on to design gowns for Myrna Loy in the 1956 Ambassador's Daughter and Ava Gardner in The Little Hut. The latter film was actually released in 1957, which sadly was the same year of Dior's untimely death. And while legions of Hollywood costume designers were not by definition haute couturiers, the costumes they produced for film paralleled haute couture standards in many ways. During the Hollywood Golden Age, costumes for all of the film's leading ladies were produced in-house in the studio's large costume departments. Much like a couture garment, these costumes were custom-made for them, designed down to the most meticulous of 
tiny little details and unrealized by skilled technicians, sometimes taking hundreds of hours to create. In an article written for Good Housekeeping in 1959, Edith Head writes about how a single fitting with Marlena Dietrich or Audrey Hepburn could take as long as 10 hours. And, you know, these women were very intensely committed, um, you know, to working with Head to get their, their costumes just right. And boy, have times changed because, for instance, when I design today for a film or, or a TV show that's set in, in the present day, I shop. As do most of our contemporaries. We just go out and buy it at the store or online. Um, occasionally you build, but now that is really the exception, not the rule. If you think of TV shows like Sex and the City, the ladies definitely wore some custom pieces, but I would wager that the majority were purchased or on loan from fashion houses. But that does not in any way diminish Patfield's genius as a costume designer. I, I actually think it exemplifies it because she, you can tell she put so much care into building each of these women's distinct characters building it around the clothing they wore. And the same can be said, of course, for her work in The Devil Wears Prada. So just how did we go from made-to-order costumes being the standard in design to the dominance of ready-to-wear like we have today? The answer is fashion and the changing fashion industry. Listeners, you might remember from past episodes that the 1960s saw the rise of ready-to-wear and that it ultimately replaced the haute couture as the progenitor of high fashion by the 1970s. Well, it's no coincidence that the decline of the haute couture industry was also paralleled by that of the Hollywood studio system, which by the end of the 1960s was all but gone. Times were a-changing. Right. And the decline of the Hollywood studio system can be traced all the way back to 1948 when the verdict was handed down in what became known as the Hollywood Antitrust Case. So this was a case between the United States government and Paramount Pictures, and the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the United States government, and they handed out a ruling that essentially made vertical integration, which we talked about in part one. Um, you may remember it meant the studios really controlled everything about a film, from its stars and crew to its production and distribution. So they owned movie theaters all across the country, um, and that became illegal and effectively marked the beginning of the end of the Hollywood studio system. The 1960s brought a new emphasis on store-bought clothing, and this, coupled with the breakdown of the studio system and decreasing film budgets, made the extensive costume departments of the various studios, and thus the legions of on-staff costumers, assistants, drapers, specialty technicians, they, you know, these roles are becoming increasingly obsolete. Many in-studio departments shut down entirely, and with the future of fashion and film design in ready-to-wear garments, custom-made wardrobes were largely left to period films. And it is thanks to this seismic shift that we have the institutionalization of the freelance costume designer and crew. Yeah, so while the big studios has a, had occasionally worked with freelance designers in the past, beginning in the 1960s, more and more studios began to contract in costume designers and their entire departments on a show-by-show -show basis, rather than having them all on staff. So this is still how film and TV production is structured to this day. All of the production crew on any given show are essentially independent contractors, although most of us are part of guilds or unions. Um, the emergence of independent contractors in the 60s is paralleled by the rise of independent films, which are films that are not connected to a studio. So while these films operated on much smaller budgets, they also had this unbridled freedom that never would have been allowed during the Hayes Code days of Hollywood studio-controlled golden age. 
And Hayes Code was essentially a set of rules that regulated filmmaking from the 1930s all the way up until 1968 when they were officially abandoned. And these are the rules that prevented women from showing cleavage and belly buttons and also prevented stars like Chinese-American actress Anna Mae Wong from kissing her white co-stars. So good riddance to those Hayes Codes. Yes, goodbye. (laughs) And as we know, the 60s was an incredibly exciting time all across the board, Um, but this also extended to experimentation in fashion and film. And we're going to hear more about it after a brief sponsor break. Filmmakers of the 1960s, like their fashion designer counterparts, pushed and ultimately shattered long-established boundaries in cinema, and in many instances used the equally avant-garde revolutionary fashions of the era to redefine the genre. Dress listeners, I have two words for you, and that is Paco Rabanne. Yeah, no other designer quite embodies the radical, anything-goes attitude and atmosphere of the 1960s more than the Spanish designer Paco Rabanne, whose designs really redefined fashion on every level, like redefined even what could be clothing. He's famous for quote-unquote sewing with pliers, and Rabanne rocketed fashion into the future with his unconventional methods and materials that included most famously plastic and metal. His most famous design, plastic disc dresses constructed using metal rings. (laughs) Uh, Audrey Hepburn actually wears one in the 1967 film Two for the Road, which has a lot of high fashion in it. And uh, it's really cool if you've not seen it. I suggest it. Vogue did a feature on Paco Rabanne the same year, 1967, and said, quote, these are materials that have never been dared in fashion. Paco Rabanne will dare them. These are constructions that haven't been dreamed of. He's dreaming of them. In this stunning four-page spread captured by Richard Avedon, Rabanne's designs were worn by statuesque gladiator sandal-wearing, quote-unquote, gladiator girls, so tall that Vogue's pages cannot even contain them. And the photo spread is electric. It's full of energy and movement, just like Rabanne's pieces, which ranged from a, quote, short, shimmering, never-still fantasy of an evening coat made entirely of gold-speckled black plastic— to the mini modern gladiator dress, which is composed entirely of hinged aluminum squares and rectangles. So these don't actually look very comfortable, but they are quite fabulous. <laughs> uh, Raban's armored yet playful vision of the future was the inspiration for costumes in more than one movie of the period, including one of my personal favorites, the 1966 French art house flick, Kiet Vu. Polly Magoo, or Who Are You, Polly Magoo, which is directed by fashion photographer William Klein. And the film is a satire of the fashion industry, so kind of like along the lines of Zoolander. But it really also simultaneously pays homage to this singular experimental period in fashion history, which is the 1960s. That's never really going to be repeated. Uh, The film stars one of Klein's favorite models, Dorothy McGowan, and is a must-see cult classic that includes many memorable movements by costume designer Janine Klein. The most widely circulated image from the film is a photograph that captures seven models, including Peggy Moffat, in matching black and white op art ensembles that just so happen to match the set's wallpaper, which is very fun. <laughs> um, but arguably, the film's most standout scene is a fashion show starring McGowan and supermodel Danal Luna in what is an obvious homage to the impracticality and ridiculousness of Raban's designs. And in this scene, the models wear giant aluminum sheets molded so ridiculous. around their bodies. <laughs> yeah. 
to form a series of like large geometric sculptures. And, and they're so rigid and uncompromising that at one point McGowan is cut and begins to bleed and quote, we'll stop the bleeding and put some base on it. The designer told her, believe me, with some base, you won't see it. You know. <laughs> yes, it's very fun. So again, check it out. Add it to your ever-growing list. Raban's designs also served as inspiration for another cult 1960s favorite, the one and the only Barbarella. Yes! <laughs> one of my all-time favorites. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, this is a 1968 sci-fi fantasy that's directed by Roger Vadim, and it's based on a popular comic series by the same name and stars um, Roger's wife, then wife Jane Fonda, as the title character. She's sent into outer space on what turns into this sex-fueled mission to save humanity from a mad scientist. It's ridiculous, but it's fabulous. <laughs> High camp, high camp, fair <laughs> High camp, yeah. It's championed today as kind of this feminist cult classic because Jane Fonda is playing this strong female lead who's really in charge of her sexuality. And we do know Raban designed at least one of Fonda's costumes. There's a short green disc-covered bodysuit, but his influence is otherwise all over the costumes by the film's designer, Jacques Fontere, as is the work of Raban's contemporary and famed futurist, the haute couturier André Courage. So if you've not seen this film, Again, add it to your list. <laughs> yeah, so Barbarella is an example of fashion-influencing film, but the 1960s films also influenced fashion back the other way, perhaps none more so than Arthur Penn's 1967 film, Bonnie and Clyde. And while Barbarella transported audiences into the future, Bonnie and Clyde took them back in history to the 1930s when the infamous real-life crime lovers lived and died. Um, and that film's release occurred simultaneously with a 1930s revival in fashion. It's it's not really a coincidence. Uh, and numerous sources credit the cinched waist and the side-tilted berets featured in the pages of Glamour and Seventeen magazine during this period to the influence of the film Bonnie and Clyde, and also especially um, attributing it to the film's star herself, model-turned-actress Faye Dunaway. Yeah, so during a visit to London the year the film premiered, Faye remembered, along Carnaby Street, the shop windows were already filled with mannequins draped with designs inspired by the film. A fashion photographer snapped a dozen shots of me walking along the street. I was wearing a dark midi skirt, a belted sweater, and a beret. A few days later, a photo showed up in a story about how the Bonnie look was all the rage. No one, including the photographer, made the connection that I was Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Somebody, somebody dropped the ball on that one. Um, but Life Magazine deemed Bonnie and Faye Dunaway, of course, fashion's new darling and dedicated a five-page fashion spread to her and the film's inspiration in 1968. Quote, now the fashion world's newest darling is the stunning inspiration for a full blast return to 30s styles, both here and abroad, says the article. And it goes on to say, Though revivals have cropped up before, it took the impact of the film to bring about a synthesis that blends the softness and droopy fit of the 1930s with the swing and legginess of the 1960s. And, and Bonnie's, you know, middle, midi-length skirts were still being talked about in 1970 when the high fashion editor John Fairchild of Women's Wear Daily heralded the return of the midi in his much-publicized crusade against the mini-skirt. He hated mini-skirts. <laughs> And now we're moving into the 1970s, where we have the 1974 adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1920s seminal text, The Great Gatsby, which is another period film that is credited with influencing fashion. 
This is furthered by the common misconception that fashion designer Ralph Lauren was the costume designer, something, you know, he hasn't exactly tried to, um, you know, dissuade people of thinking. But Lauren was indeed responsible for executing many of the costumes for the film's leading men, such as Robert Redford, but the film's costume designer, Theone Aldridge, who won an Academy Award for her work on this project, insisted that she designed these costumes and Lauren actually executed them. So my guess is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, he said, she said. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Regardless, um, Lauren's involvement did undeniably inform his own design aesthetic. He translated the refined elegance of the 1920s men's and women's wear seamlessly into his fashion collections produced around the time of the film's release, you know, 1973, 1974, And in fact, one of his ads for his menswear line shows a man almost identical in both pose and dress to a photograph of Robert Redford as Gatsby. And printed on the heel of the film's debut, the fashion press immediately made this connection and often erroneously cited Lauren as the costume designer for the entire film. And of course, this is a misconception that kind of still continues to this day. Right. And Lauren is mistakenly credited with designing the costumes for another celebrated film from the 70s, Woody Allen's Annie Hall, which was released in 1978. Diane Keaton's charming appropriation of menswear was so largely imitated that the quote-unquote Annie Hall look became an identifiable trend in fashion and was even translated into children's wear. Everywhere there's special excitement over the Annie Hall look was something that women's wear daily observed in 1978. Um, But New York Magazine wrote that the Annie Hall look, quote, the layering of a man's shirt, vest, and jacket over pants or skirt has only popularized what designers like Ralph Lauren have been doing for years. Although both Alan and Keaton's characters wore pieces of Ralph Lauren clothing, he was not in any way involved in the design process, nor did he apparently inform Annie's unique display of clothing. And according to costume designer Ruth Morley, the appeal of Annie's style was its relationship to a unique individual style, not the pretensions of high fashion. And something that the designer expounded upon in an interview with Vogue magazine in 1979, the look, she says, quote, coincided with a general recycled, put-together, eclectic style coming on ever since the gentle demise of the late 60s rich hippie clothes began to rush into old uniforms, army pants, and Victoriana. And since it is not a designer-dictated style, anyone can gather up pieces from her closet or the neighborhood thrift shops in small New York boutiques like San Francisco and Jezebel. In the same article, Morley discussed how she, Morley, was inspired to create Annie's look. But according to Woody Allen in his 93 autobiography, he said, if anyone deserves credit for the look, it is Diane Keaton. The Annie Hall look was the exact way Keaton dressed in real life. I used it on screen because she was a great natural stylist. Mrs. Morley was often very much against Keaton's choices and wanted me to tell her not to wear such out there fashions. I opted to let Keaton wear what she wanted. But it is Keaton April who I think we can let set the record straight once and for all because she wrote in her memoirs, Woody's direction was the same. Wear what you want to wear. That was a first. So I did what Woody said, or rather I stole what I wanted to wear from the cool looking women (laughs) on the streets in Soho. Annie's khaki pants, vest, and tie came from then. And we cannot talk about fashion and film in the 1970s without talking about black exploitation, a new genre of films that emerged during this time to champion black characters and communities as the heroes in their own stories. And this was often done in action and fashion-packed productions that remain iconic to this day. One of the biggest stars 
of the black exploitation genre was actor Richard Roundtree, who happens to have begun his career as a model in the Ebony Fashion Fair, which we did an episode on last season, so you can check that out. But Roundtree is most famous for his role as the private detective John Shaft in the 70s Shaft trilogy. We have 1971's Shaft was followed in 72 by Shaft's Big Score, and in 73, Shaft in Africa. So John Shaft was the epitome of street chic. He had these impeccably tailored leather coats, mohair turtlenecks, tight-fitting pants, and these were all custom-made for Roundtree. And in a 2019 interview with the New York Post, the costume designer Joe Alisi revealed that despite the attention paid to clothing, they never set out to make a particularly fashionable film. He says the James Bond movies had just started a few years earlier, so Shaft was supposed to look as great as that, but more of the world that he comes from. That Shaft remains an icon of fashion to this day is perhaps not surprising when we consider the first Shaft film's director, the ever-dapper Gordon Parks. And again, we have already done an episode on Mr. Parks and his prolific career. He was truly a Renaissance man to the nth degree. He was a best-selling novelist, a memoirist, a gifted pianist, a composer, a photojournalist, (laughs) a fashion photographer— and a film director. And he also had an eye for the sartorial detail and elegance um, that he embodied in his own personal style. And according to Alisi, it is really Parks who was responsible for Shaft's trademark leather jackets because he knew that they would, you know, just look fantastic on camera. And they do. And they do. (laughs) Robert's costumes in the films are still being referenced to this day for their influence on fashion. The movie's subsequent remakes, which there have been many, have put great pains in carrying on this legacy with careful attention to maintaining Shaft's signature style. So for the 2000 remake, for instance, starring Samuel L. Jackson, there was a special partnership with Armani that gave costume designer Ruth Carter carte blanche of the luxury brand's offerings. And Cass, if we're going to talk about fashion in relation to black exploitation films, we have to talk about Diana Ross <laughs> in the 1975 hit Mahogany. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> not only did Diana Ross star in this rags to riches story of a struggling fashion designer, Tracy Chambers, Ross herself was the film's costume designer, which is incredible. Which just blew my mind. I know. I literally texted April and was like, okay, if I have to talk about one, or if I have to see one black exploitation film for the fashion, what should it be? And she wrote back immediately, Mahogany. And you were not <laughs> lying. <laughs> Uh, This was only Ross's second ever film, the first being her critically acclaimed film debut, actually, as Billie Holiday and Lady Sings the Blues, for which she received a Best Actress nomination by both the Oscars and the Golden Globes. She won the latter. Mahogany was actually directed by Barry Gordy III, founder of Motown, and the man who actually signed the Supremes, but Diana had gone uh, solo in 1970. A bee-feathered and bedecked Ross was the cover star of Ebony's Magazine's October 1975 issue, which ran a feature on the spectacular new film and Ross's role in the design process, which included designing 50 outfits for the film, quote, ranging from sportswear to haute couture, and personally supervised all operations from purchase of the special fabrics to coordination of colors to beading and all the other finishing techniques. And 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 we should mention here, Cass, that while Ross designed many of the costumes for the film, she did not design them all. Um, my guess would be that the rest of the film's costumes, of which there were many, were left up to her right hand, Susan Gertzman, who is actually credited as the film's wardrobe supervisor. 
And according to the same Ebony article, apparently Diana dreamed of being a fashion designer before she ever dreamed of being a singer, but fate had different plans. She tells the magazine, quote, the only opportunity I ever had in this direction was in my own personal style when I was with the Supremes. I used to talk to the guys who designed our clothes and I tell them exactly what I thought we should wear. After reading the script for the film, she says, gee, wouldn't it be something if I could design the clothes? Admitting this was not an easy sell to Gordy, who apparently was was her ex-lover so much. Um, he eventually conceded. So maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> the power of female persuasion. Yeah. <laughs> um, the costumes in the film really ranged from the outlandish to the spectacular. Ross admittedly took a lot of Japanese inspiration um, for her designs. Sometimes they were not exactly the most successful translations. <laughs> oh. um, they can sometimes feel a little exaggerated, a, a tad garish. For instance, at one point, she parades down a runway wearing a bright orange kimono-inspired gown emblazoned down the front with a ginormous blue dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not very subtle. <laughs> but at their most successful, her, her gowns can be quite stunning, and they feel instantly modern, fusing contemporary fashion with Hollywood glamour. I'm thinking particularly of this rich, purple, one-sleeved, body-skimming, floor-length silk jersey number that's paired with a giant matching muff. And it's actually what she's wearing when Sean pushes her into the fountain during that fashion shoot montage. Which, if you have to watch one aspect of the film, it is this fashion shoot montage. She's absolutely stunning. Do you have a favorite costume from the movie, April? Um, you know, one of the things that always comes to my mind immediately when I think about mahogany is her fabulous hat. She wears a yes. lot of hats in the film, and they're they're very, like, 70s groovy. Yeah, and you can actually, now that I've seen the movie, um, I can see where Dreamgirls took a lot of inspiration from this movie, like, with the shots and, like, how she looks. It was really kind of cool to make those connections. So, check it out, guys. So many fabulous fashion and film movies. Now, so little time to watch them all. My suggestion is to start now and don't stop ever. <laughs> I actually just got a Netflix DVD subscription just so I could start watching these movies and stop paying up a, a lot of money renting them on iTunes. Um, so it's been really fun, actually. April Mahogany is a perfect way to wrap up our coverage of 1970s, but this is the part in my writing of this quote-unquote two-part episode that I realized that we still have four decades of fashion and film left to cover. I started writing about the 1980s only to discover to have continued this episode all the way into the present day, as was my original intention, but we would have been here for at least another hour. <laughs> yes. Um, with some 40 years of momentous events, films, and partnerships still to cover, fashion and film has now officially become a three-part episode. <laughs> the very first three-part episode in the history of dress. <laughs> so that being said, dress listeners, uh, this was a necessary but unexpected development. And with so many fascinating topics and interviews already lined up for this season, we're going to wait for a bit to air part three because we have some episodes coming up that, are, that need to air at a certain time. Exactly. So apologies for that, but it's actually just fine for me because honestly, I've ended up, like I said, watching a ton of movies and preparations for this, these episodes. And this gives me a little more time to revisit the fascinating films and fashions that helped to define my own personal sense of style growing up. And in the meantime, dress listeners, this gives you all a chance to write to us and tell us about, you know, what you consider some of the best fashion and film moments from the past 40 years. 
I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. In preparation for part three, may you all consider the legacy of fashion and film in your closet next time you get dressed. And remember, we love hearing from you. So please write to us at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. And as always, a special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps make the show possible each and every week. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.